Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, a very interesting guest. I think that we're going to be learning a lot about marketplaces, about building and scaling companies. And I guess uh, without further ado, Marco Zapacosta, welcome to the show today. Uh, Alejandro, thanks for having me. So originally you grew up in the Bay Area. So uh, how was life there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a native born Silicon Valleyan. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I have, uh, the good fortune of being the son of two software engineers and, and two entrepreneurs, um, which certainly helped shape me, uh, probably more than I even appreciate. Um, because, you know, I, and this is the thing I reflect most on, they showed me that it's possible, um, to be a technology entrepreneur, um, and that was sort of the dinnertime conversation. That is what they did their whole careers. And so for me, it was this sort of very unique um, opportunity where I, I saw that up close. And, you know, I think in many ways, my parents are the most impressive people I know, but at the same time, they're still just human beings. And so seeing people sort of do it um, and go through it makes you believe that you can too. Um, and I take... Uh, there's, I, there's a, an immense good fortune in that. Uh, I feel very lucky. And so I'm happy also sort of be on the podcast and just talk about my story. So hopefully other people can see the same thing in themselves. Very cool. And how were the dinners like? Were you guys like talking a lot about ideas and, and how to address complex problems? I mean, I, I don't know if this is a, where you want to take it, but my mom doesn't believe in kids' tables uh, okay. at, at sort of like dinner. or So she always thought that, you know, we should just participate in the conversation that the adults wanted to have. And, you know, often that would be about their work. And so, you know, we would be there and we'd listen and maybe we'd ask questions. Sometimes, obviously, you'd be bored and want to get out of there too. But, um, you know, they had the view that I mean, it was something that we should all participate in. So I heard about all sorts of stuff, um, probably more than I even remember explicitly. You know, and it's interesting the way that you put it, that you are uh, Silicon Valley. You know, you don't you don't come across a lot of Silicon Valleyans, you know, so I, I'm just wondering, like, how you have seen the ecosystem, you know, shape up over time. So I think there is one big thing that I think is unfortunate that has happened. Um, so 
you know, reflecting on my parents' stories, you know, they worked at their respective companies for, you know, 20 years each, basically. Um, and what that highlights is how much you can accomplish in two decades. And I always had that perspective of like, this entrepreneurial journey is not one that happens overnight, uh, or even in a year or two. Um, it's something that plays out to have real impact and real scale over the course of decades. And I think, unfortunately, um, because of the sort of narratives that emerge around these companies that are always trying to be compressed, you know, TechCrunch writing about the new hot thing that just emerged and sort of exploded out of nowhere, I think people have a very false impression of how long it takes. Um, and that, I think, missets people's expectations and probably attracts the wrong types of people to the journey. So um, that is one big thing that I saw up close that I have as sort of a default that I think is not as common. And I think it's deeply unfortunate for people. Very interesting. And and I guess, you know, like being there and, and being exposed to this environment, why did you decide to come to New York City? So actually, I didn't think I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, that was not something that I grew up thinking about or or focusing, I thought I, I was going to be a research scientist. Um, and so I went to Columbia because they had a very, very strong neuroscience program. And um, I sort of jumped in, started taking classes in it. I loved it. I loved the study of it. Um, but then I spent a summer in a lab. And I realized that that was deeply boring and not something that I was going to be able to do. I'm glad people do it. The world needs them. Um, but it just did not fit me. Uh, it was too sort of micro, almost nano in focus. It was uh, extremely uh, repetitive. And really, it's not about ideas. It's about sort of methodical execution of a very, very deliberate plan. And it wasn't exciting to me. Um, so I actually had this sort of like, you know, crisis is too strong of a word, but a you know, moment of reflection when I realized this dream that I had for myself was was wrong um, and was not something that was actually right. So I continued to study it because I still found it fascinating, but I knew very quickly that I did not want to live that life. And it actually then set off a sort of random exploration of like various things that I got excited about, one of which, uh, which is particularly random, was social security reform, pension reform. Um, and I got so r randomly passionate about it that I wrote a couple of op-eds for my student newspaper. Um, and this is only re relevant because that's actually how I met my future co-founders. Um, unbeknownst to me at the time, my future co-founder was similarly and surprisingly passionate about social security reform, uh, arguably even more than me because he dropped out of college for a semester to start an organization focused on advocating for reform. Um, and I got connected to him through these op-eds that I had written. And then I ended up spending a semester uh, as well, taking off from college and, and working on this thing. And it was actually this experience that uh, showed me how fun it was to build something out of nothing, to sort of rally people around a shared dream and just kind of like to go, um, to, to make something out of nothing. Um, and, you know, obviously people know that... Uh, the, that debate fizzled out and nothing actually happened, uh, which taught us that we did not want to operate in politics because that was uh, sort of a, 
provided very little agency. Um, but we did love the idea of building and creating. Um, and so we took that opportunity to sort of step back and say, how can we have similar sort of large scale impact and build, but have more agency and have more, um, control over our path. And, you know, this is obviously, I think where my background came into play and, and knowing that it was sort of a viable path. Um, I sort of encourage us to go down this sort of technology, um, startup path. Um, and here we are. So, you know, I actually tend to think that, um, pursuing your passions is a actually not always great advice. Um, people's passions can be kind of dumb or sort of, uh, like not relevant to the world. But one, one really good thing that comes from pursuing your passions is you tend to actually meet other passionate people. Um, and those are really special and finding other passionate people, particularly ones who share similar passions. And so there's sort of a natural affinity can be an incredible way to make connections that then sprout totally new and surprising paths forward. And that certainly happened with me. Um, and so, you know, indulge your, indulge your passions, indulge your curiosities, knowing that they may not lead to anything, but they may lead you to people that sort of spark something new and even better. So talking about leading to people that spark something new and, and something even better, and especially talking about ideas and sharing a dream. How did the uh, the idea of Thumbtack, you know, start to to really, you know, like become a little bit more tangible and and something that you know made sense to go after? Yeah, so we kind of did what you're not supposed to do um, and decide to start a company and then go hunt for an idea. Um, I actually think this gets unnecessarily shortchanged as a path to. Um, building companies. Uh, Microsoft famously did this. Amazon famously did this. Uh, you know, there's, there's incredible examples of it. And, you know, what we did at the time was, was say to ourselves something very simple, um, and, and, and wonder what was broken that would be inevitably fixed by technology. And then we just started talking. Um, you know, we actually spent a summer living with my co-founder, my future co-founder, so that we could sort of brainstorm more, Um, and you know, the insight that led to Thumbtack or the observation was rather simple you know, why is it so hard to hire a plumber? Um, you know, here you were in sort of the, the late mid to late two thousands when, you know, Amazon had emerged. So e-commerce was making it easy to buy things. Google obviously made it incredibly easy to find information. And yet you still had to work hard to spend money to hire a pro. And that's like, antithetical to capitalism. Um, like all of capitalism is about making it easy for you to spend money to get what you want. And here was a category that was hard and it wasn't hard because the supply wasn't there. You know, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of great pros out there excited and willing to do these jobs. It was a matchmaking problem. It was a discovery problem. And, you know, the more we looked at that, the more we felt like, you know, wow, like, not only is this bound to be fixed by technology, but it deserves to be fixed by technology. There's so much like latent human potential that is going unrealized um, that we can improve upon um, if we find a way to sort of crack this. And so, you know, from the very beginning, we've had the same dream that we're chasing today to radically change the process through which, you know, customers and professionals come together. Um, and and that is still what we're working hard today very on. Cool. And, and in, aren't done. We think there's still so much more to do, but are, uh, further than maybe we ever thought we could be. And, and still not even one step, uh, towards where we would like to be over time. 
Very cool. And I guess, uh, obviously, you identified this problem, but I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, like, how was that brainstorming process like, you know, until you actually got to, hey, this is the actual, an actual, like, really interesting, a big problem. Like, what was, you know, what, what happened until, you know, what was that process until you got there? Yeah, so truth be told, Thumbtack was actually our second idea. Um, so this now takes you back to the summer of 2007 and what we had begun to brainstorm and really get excited about was a tool to help you analyze your spending, track your budgets, keep track of your finances. Um, and if it sounds a lot like Mint, it was exactly like Mint. Um, you know, we'd gone so far as to talk to Yodley, the backend provider for these financial integrations at the time, and start to talk to investors about this idea. We'd written up a pitch for it. And then I think it was like September, October 2007 at TechCrunch, whatever it was called, Mint launches. And it was awesome, right? Like they just did a great job and they got, they raised money. And it was this like incredibly bittersweet moment because on one hand, we were like, fuck, like we're not going to catch these guys. Uh, they just, they did it and they did it well. Um, but the flip side is that it was very um, encouraging and ultimately confidence inducing when we realized, hey, you know what? Like, we were right. We were like a little slow here. We were a little behind, but we were right. And, you know, we had a lot of people tell us that we were not right. Um, I remember my brother sort of saying, like, you know, I love you and I'm not going to give you my bank passwords. Uh, so why do you think some random stranger is going to give you their bank passwords? Uh, which was, I think, a totally valid feedback. And I think probably the default position of, of most people. And our review was like, well, if you create enough value and if you brand it in the right way and you sort of, you know, communicate how seriously you take the whole, the trust angle, we think you can. And Mint showed that that was true. Um, and I think that built our confidence to continue sort of chasing ideas um, and to sort of keep going. You know, we obviously like sulked for a little bit and we're sad about it. Uh, but, you know, after a couple of weeks, we sort of got back on the horse and, and, Thumbtack was the second idea. And, you know, you know, truth. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for that because actually I think Thumbtack is a bigger and better idea. Very nice. So then how did you go about validating the idea? So that's actually something where we basically didn't, uh, we, we very quickly believed it was a problem um, that needed solving. You could basically talk to any busy homeowner, any busy mom, is any busy adult and they would tell you, oh yeah, I got a to-do list that never gets done because this process is such a pain. And even when I find somebody, I'm never sure if I found the right person. So it took only if, you know, a dozen phone calls and, and a dozen conversations to, to quickly be like, okay, we're right. There's, there's clearly a problem here. What took longer to get confidence in is like, is there an edge? Uh, is there a way for us to get in that, um, is unique and differentiated. And, and here, what we started to do was just study everybody who was doing it online at the time. And what we came to believe was uh, really everything that existed at the time, now we're talking 2008 and into 2009, was an online version of an offline product, specifically classifieds or directories. And by virtue of being online, those products were better than their offline counterparts. But still, they had the same limitations that those products had. And, and weirdly, they were not reimagined for the sort of digitally native world that we were now operating in. Um, you know, classifieds 
still had this ephemeral, you know, sort of like uh, they only existed for a few days and then the stream expired, meaning that these pros could never build sort of a, a reputation and a, and a sort of like uh, profile that's permanent where they could accrue trust. Um, so they were forced to just compete on price. And in directories, the burden on the customer was always the same where, yeah, it was easier to find names and numbers. But then at the end of the day, you still had to call down that list and ask the same questions over and over to figure out who's available, who's qualified, who's interested, how much is it going to cost? And basically it had like, it made it better, but it had not actually fixed anything. And so that then gave us the confidence to sort of like go for it and to try and make it happen because we we looked around and we're like, Hey, this is big. This is bound to get fixed. And nobody seems to be doing it in a way that feels at all likely to, to be that sort of like dominant category killing, um, offering. And that was enough for us to, to take the leap. So then what happened next? So I think the best way to describe it is there was a period of a couple years of, um, you know, feeling around a dark room to find the light switch. Um, and one, one piece of context that's useful is Thumbtack started two weeks before Lehman Brothers went on, out of business. Um, August 1st. 2008 and we were then it was just me and one other guy and you know we're watching the financial world collapse and our reaction was like well you know we're probably not going to get jobs anywhere else so we might as well just keep working on this and hunker down um and that actually in some ways was was uh deeply fortunate because it took a lot of the pressure of like finding the solution instantly and sort of rocket shipping it And we could just be super frugal and uh, really do a lot of customer development and thinking and learning to try and figure out, like, how can we do this better? Um, and what we hit upon was sort of a, a request for quote model um, and, and realizing that we could remove a lot of the pain out of the customer experience by having them, instead of reaching out to pros individually and asking the same questions, we could take what they were looking for, the sort of project details, and go out to our network of pros And ask them and do the, the, the annoying work of reaching out and connecting with them. Obviously, we could do it programmatically. And then the ones who are truly interested and available and, and qualified could then come back and send that customer a quote. And, you know, for both sides, this was a material improvement to the alternative because they were, there was less guesswork. Uh, they could both sort of get what they wanted faster. Um, And we hit upon that and we felt like it was better than sort of the alternatives at the time. And then the real challenge became scaling it, um, you know, figuring out a way to sort of like, you know, solve the chicken and the egg problem, uh, which all marketplaces have. Um, and that was much more the focus, you know, driving distribution than, um, than anything else for a long time. Yeah, because I mean, the, the supply and the demand, you know, the, the challenge is real. And when you're building a marketplace, it's like launching two companies at the same time. So, Marco, I guess uh, as as you were building the marketplace and the and the supply and the demand, you know, obviously you were you were getting all these people, you were sending messages to these people to create profiles and contact. And at what point did you start to feel like perhaps you guys have found the the switch in the room? So, um, you know, the the fundraising sort of trajectory was uh summer of 09 we raised friends and family money and then summer of 2010 we raised uh sort of angel money and 
the angels that we raised from all these sort of great Silicon Valley angels um, had very consistent advice for us, which is, you know, focus on the chicken and the egg problem. Distribution is the biggest challenge in marketplaces. Like just be laser focused on that. And and we did. And so through 2020, 2010 and into 2011, we made a ton of progress on that. And it felt uh, really good. And then we went out to raise our, our series A in the sort of like summer fall of 11 and uh, really struggled. Um, and despite having, I think, shown more traction in building up our marketplace than really anybody else had in the category, the feedback we got consistently was, um, yeah, okay, great, cool, but how are you going to monetize? And at the time, uh, we just weren't focused on it. Um, and this was a, a big lesson learned, which was when you're thinking about your priorities, it's not simply a matter of, of understanding what the previous investors sort of are smartly encouraging you to do. It's also understanding what future investors want you to go do. Um, and we hadn't appreciated that, you know, for your series A, in many ways, that's like your first growth round. And it actually mattered less proving out the, the sort of marketplace building and liquidity building mechanics that we had you know, further and further and further. And what mattered more was beginning to show the unit economic story that we could monetize these interactions and these connections more effectively um, or at all. Um, and that actually was uh, pretty brutal because we just hadn't focused on it. And so here we were, um, fall of 11, feeling great about the progress we'd made, saying like, oh, like we just, we did everything we were supposed to do. And then being told by basically 40 investors in a row, yeah, but that's not enough. Uh, we want to see this other thing. And we really had to scramble last minute and put in place a sort of monetization model, which was highly imperfect, but showed that we could monetize this. And, you know, we got a, a couple of investors to lean in because of that. And, you know, Javelin, which ultimately led the A, I think gets a ton of credit because what they saw was you know, the team and the team's approach much more than the specific unit numbers that, that we were showing them. They said, wow, like you heard this feedback, you jumped on it. And in two months you put this in place and now you're showing this kind of traction. Like that just makes us believe that you guys will tackle future challenges. And, you know, I think one thing that I think people don't appreciate is that most investors have very little uh, conviction um, and very little like independent mindedness um and very thankful for for sort of what javelin saw early on and the confidence that they had to say yeah these are these are entrepreneurs we want to back um and you know that they that then closed in january of 12 and at that point we had scaled the model we continued to scale it for maybe three four five more months and and then we realized okay we were not on the right path from a monetization standpoint and we had to change from a subscription model where we were at the time to a sort of a, a marginal pricing model where pros paid to send quotes. Um, and that's something that we put in place over the rest of 2012. And in early 13, in April of 13, was the first month that we had fully rolled it out. Um, and uh, with that data, we actually then went back to a lot of the investors who passed on us in the Series A and said, hey, look. Um, you were right about us not having proved at the time you were wrong that we wouldn't be able to, here's the proof. 
Um, and Sequoia, to their great credit, um, jumped on it. And they, they saw that we had indeed cracked it, and um, they ended up leading our B in um, May of 2013. And really, they did it off six weeks of data. Um, and they did not sort of, you know, make us prove it in 15 different ways. They they saw it, and I think again they they saw the team sort of, sort of gumption and just sort of dedication come through, and and they leaned in and and they did the round. And from there, it set off sort of a a, a period of just scaling and just growth uh, from 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. The the business scaled tremendously, um, and that comes with all the you know, operational realities, um, building a leadership team for the first time, you know, scaling every company process. Um, and that was, uh, fun and also very hard. Um, so that was sort of the second chapter. If, if the first chapter was, um, sort of feeling out for that light switch in the dark, the second chapter, which started in sort of 2012, 2013 was all about just scaling, um, rapidly. And that sort of took us through 17. And then the sort of last chapter, which I think we sort of just concluded, uh, we actually ended up sort of rebuilding the whole marketplace once again. So what, take, take us, walk us through that, through that chapter. Like, why did you guys decide to rebuild the marketplace again? So um, this goes back to, you know, the original vision. So we want to be the, the best place for customers to find and hire pros for whatever they need done. And the core of that comes from reliability and consistency. Um, And the challenge was uh, we had a model, the request for quote model, that had too much inconsistency because of the effort that it asked of pros uh, to read and review and respond each and every time a customer request came in. You can almost think about it. We had a search engine that had humans in the back end, uh, and obviously it made it slow, which alone was frustrating because at, at that point, everybody on the internet expects things to happen instantly. But even worse, because it's sort of mediated through human beings, those humans get tired, or sometimes they're driving their cars, or they are working on the side of a house up on a ladder, and they can't respond. And that meant that our customers got fewer options which meant that they hired fewer pros, which meant that our pros got uh, made less money and, and, and you know, grew their business less than they wanted to. And it really just sapped the energy from our marketplace. So despite it being better than the alternative, um, you know, I really think it was still the best way to find and hire pros on the internet. It was not good enough to be the category killer, to be that you know, Amazon for services that works so well, so reliably each and every time that you come for it sort of as a habit. Um, and so we were in this position where, you know, we had a pretty big business, um, but it wasn't on track to be a generational business. And we had a choice, uh, which was, do you accept your sort of reality and play it out and, you know, do with it what you can? And I'm sure we could have continued to scale it to hundreds of billion, millions and maybe even low, low billions of revenue, but it would never have built the brand that would have been necessary to become sort of the Amazon, the default in the space. And that's what we wanted to do. Um, and so we, we basically put to ourselves, like, how can we, how can we get out of this? And we realized that it was at the core, it was the model. 
you know, we'd worked very hard over time to improve the matching, improve the tooling for pros, improve everything that the pricing to make it more dynamic. Uh, but all those things made marginal positive improvements, but none of them added a zero in terms of order of magnitude of the amount of supply we were getting out of our pros. And so we basically said, look, can we automate this? Um, we, we don't want to be just a list of names and numbers. Um, Google is that Yelp is that they're very good at it. We're never going to beat them at that. And honestly, it's a bad experience anyway. So we don't want to do that. But how do we retain the intentfulness that today comes through this human generated quote when doing it programmatically? Um, and this set the stage for basically the last two and a half years of work, um, where we set out to automate the entire sort of vetting and responding on behalf of pros such that instead of them doing it manually, they would set up, a, uh, you know, they give us their targeting preferences around which customers they wanted, where they would travel, when they work, what they charge. And then we could use that to generate search results that were true options um, that gave customers insight into which pro was really right for them and a pro that was available and had a price that met their budget. Um, and there were sort of like two enormous challenges in that. Um, the first was simply like understanding these categories deeply enough such that you could automate it. So, you know, we cover 500 different occupations, basically every type of home service pro, event pros, wellness, and for each category, you have to go in and say, okay, for a carpet cleaner, they need to know how many, how many square feet or how many bedrooms that they need to clean. Are there pets? Uh, what types of stains? Are there stairs? Um, all the things necessary to figure out whether they could do that job, whether they wanted to do that job, and how much they charge for it. And then multiply that by 500 because you have to do that individually for carpet cleaners and window washers and carpenters and electricians and on and on and on. Um, so as you can imagine, that's a fair bit of work. Um, but that actually wasn't even the hard part. Um, that was just a lot of work. But, you know, apply enough smart people to a, a hard problem, they can make a lot of progress. Uh, the one that was really hard was this changed how our pros uh, interfaced with us. And so they had to give up a lot of control and through that trust us a lot more because we changed the business model as well. Historically, pros had total discretion over which quotes they were paying for and sort of reading and reviewing these responses. And through that, they had, they had total discretion. Um, if they wanted it, great. They paid for it. If they didn't, fine. If they didn't even look at their phone, there was no expense to them. To a model where after they told us their targeting preferences, uh, they were automatically charged for anybody who contacted them. Um, that is a big, big change. And, you know, you could imagine we had a quarter million active businesses on the platform. Yeah. Changing that relationship uh, was excruciatingly hard. Um, it was, A, just change, and change alone is hard. But, B, it required a lot more trust. And it required them to give up something that was working well for them. And, you know, they didn't understand why we were changing it. They would say, hey, this is working great for me. What, what are you doing? It's like, well... But for customers, it's inconsistent. And they would be like, well, I don't, I don't care. I don't need it to be consistent for them. I just need to pay for the jobs I want. Um, and you know, through this transition, 
it we truly changed everything. We changed the pro experience. Uh, we changed the entire customer experience. We changed the business model, and through that, we changed every pricing model, spam model, um, you know, the the financial model, the data models underneath it all, uh, the infrastructure to support it. Um, we basically rebuilt ourselves soup to nuts uh, over the last two and a half years, and now I can say it was worth it. Um, and it was right and it worked. Um, but there were certainly moments in there where it was not obvious. Yeah. And I'm sure that it was scary too, because obviously you guys say uh, we're already operating at a certain scale that, you know, changes of this nature, you know, they're, they're like, uh, you know, make it or break it type of thing. I mean, we've seen that, you know, like with big companies, like, uh, for example, Dig, you know, when they did the rebrand, you know, it was a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's nerve wracking. That's right. We bet the company. Yeah. Um, and you know, lots of lessons learned through that all, but, um, but what was your biggest one, Marco? What was your biggest lesson? Let's talk about that. Your biggest lesson from going through this nerve wracking, you know, uh, chapter or phase. So, um, I think what I would have done differently is try to set expectations better upfront to the team, to myself, to the leadership team about how hard what we were trying to do would be. And, you know, I, I'll admit part of me wonders if we actually would have done it, if we'd truly known. So uh, there's some benefit to being ignorant. But, you know, the, that, that quip that happiness is expectations minus reality is very real. And so when you expect things to be, oh, this will take us six months or 12 months, uh, and then it takes 24 or 30, that's a big blow. Um, and I wish I had internalized a bit more what we were really saying we were trying to do and how hard that would be. And then been very honest with people saying, Hey, look, this can be hard. We're trying to change, rebuild the airplane while it's still flying while not losing any altitude such that we can set ourselves up for, you know, another hundred X of growth. And, um, we don't know how we're going to do it we're certainly going to find that it's harder than we think it's going to be. There's going to be moments where we all believe that it won't work and we're going to begin to lose faith. And yet, um, if we pull through, it will be the single most satisfying professional experience that we may ever have had up until this point. So if you're excited about that, sign up. And if you're not, um, here's a, here's a happy handshake and, you know, take care. Um, but by not being that blunt and that crisp up front, you're sort of in this constant sort of like, you know, uh, battle to sort of try and articulate where you are, where you want to be, what's next, um, what, what success look like. Um, and that's tough. It's really tough. I hear you. I hear you. So I guess uh, for the folks that are listening to get, um, uh, a better idea on perhaps, you know, how big you guys are uh, today, can you tell us perhaps, how much capital you guys have raised and, and the number of employees that you guys have? Sure. Uh, we've raised $400 million from uh, Sequoia, Tiger, Google, Bailey Gifford, and Javelin. And we are something around eight 900 employees uh, across three offices. Uh, San Francisco is where we have all of our um, product development and marketing teams. Uh, Salt Lake City is where we have go to market, um, and our success teams. And then we have, 
a team in the Philippines that does a lot of marketplace operations. And <clears throat> yeah, you know, the, the, the business does, you know, um, a, you know, a billion plus in GMV, um, across all of our categories. Um, and you know, we're proud of the scale, but honestly, the, the thing that gets me most excited about is we're still a zero, a rounding error in relative to the opportunity. Um, and so we feel like we have as much growth in front of us as we've had behind us. Um, and now with this new model, I'm just certain that we can deliver an experience that is radically better than anybody else. And what we see is it's going to build us into that go-to brand. Yeah. And obviously the, you know, people, investors and, and founders, they always talk about tackling big markets and this is a massive market. So how, how big is this market? There's something like a trillion dollars in spend in the United States alone on local services, um, covering all these different categories. Uh, the biggest single sort of category is, is home services, which is everything from, you know, home maintenance to, you know, fix your dishwasher to a plumber to, to fix your heater to a roofer to a general contractor. Um, that trillion dollars doesn't count business to business spend. It doesn't count sort of your insurance claim for your home warranty to get something fixed. So there's even more spend on top of it. There's probably something on the order of 20 million Americans who make their living at a service company in these categories. So it represents uh, something like maybe one in seven, one in eight of all working Americans uh, do this type of work. Um, and yet it is effectively still completely analog. Wow. That's uh, unbelievable. The yeah. And the way I, I encourage people to think about it is, you know, the sharing economy is still in the early days. And what, you, what has happened so far is the, the winners to date have all been companies that have liberated these underutilized physical assets, homes and cars, uh, to immense consumer benefit and supplier benefit as well. Uh, it's just incredible what has happened very, very quickly. Um, but that actually is not the biggest asset. Um, the biggest asset is human talent and the skill and knowledge that that it has to provide unique services that are non-commodified, that are hard to trade. And that human talent represents the sort of biggest unlocked market opportunity from sort of a, a digital commerce perspective. Um, and it's something that I think we're still early, early on, but in five or 10 years, uh, people will look back and realize that it was actually even bigger than the sort of early players in the sharing economy. So I think all that is just getting started. Yeah, no, that's definitely, definitely exciting. So, so Marco, I guess now, you know, there's one question that I always uh, ask guests that come on the show, and that is if you had the time to have a chat with your younger self, perhaps that younger Marco that was brainstorming, uh, you know, perhaps about what would be that next idea. And then finally you got this idea and you were thinking about launching the business Knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself and why before launching, let's say, Thumbtack? Hey, look, I feel like the lesson that we keep learning is the power of focus. And um, 
you get smart people together, they often get enamored with their smart ideas. Uh, but the reality is the best ideas are, are usually very, very simple. Um, and the very best ideas are dramatically more important, more valuable, more, th- more worthwhile chasing than good to great ideas. And, and what I mean more specifically is like, I think early on, we didn't fully appreciate exactly what the problem was that we were solving. You know, we had this sort of grand vision of, of digitizing this whole experience. And so, you know, early on, we had scheduling and payments and all these bells and whistles from, from the get-go, which uh, I think are part of our long-term roadmap. Uh, but that missed the, the deep insight that what matters at the end of the day and what is most broken is the match is bringing these two sides together and everything else is in service of that. Um, and had we really, had we looked at our plans and realized, wow, this is like, this is complicated. There's a lot of stuff here. Do we really believe we have to do all this uh, to be successful? I, I would love to tell myself that because I think what we would have done is gone back and talked to more customers and said, you know what? Like the thing that comes up over and over and over is just how hard it is to find and trust that you've connected with the right person. Um, and, that should be our singular and obsessive uh, focus. And in as much as we can do other things to enable that, great, but nothing else matters. So just focus even more. Um, and I, we would have gone faster and we would have made even more progress. We'd be even bigger right now. Um, so yeah. something I, I keep trying to do. I hear you. Very, very powerful, Marco. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and, and say hi? I'm easy to get a hold of, you know, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is MLZ. Um, so send me a message and, you know, we can chat and go from there. Fantastic. Marco, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.